This is Tommy's Outdoors 106. And if you listen to episode 100, you already knew this episode is coming. Uh, and if you follow me on social media, Twitter mainly, at Outdoors Podcast, you also might have picked up on hints that this episode is coming. And so today, our guest is Dr. Ruth Carden. And obviously, uh, Ruth doesn't require much introductions. We're going to talk about Irish cave bones. Um, Ruth is doing absolutely fascinating work. And the, the most incredible and crazy thing about this whole thing is that that research that Ruth does is almost entirely self-funded. That is incredible because she is pushing our understanding, she is pushing the boundaries of our understanding of the past entirely on her own devices, almost entirely on her own devices, because while we're speaking about that, I want to give a big shout out to a car garage, K&N Motors, Dublin 22, who financed or co-financed part of Ruth's um, research. We're going to talk about it in the podcast more. And uh, make sure you follow the podcast and make sure you follow TommySeldors.com because shortly we're going to tell you how you can support Ruth's research. Because I think that anyone who's interesting in nature and in the past and understanding um, how Ireland or, or even uh, Europe looked like um, should support Ruth and should support her research. So um, we're going to jump into that in a second, but I'm not going to forget to just remind you that if you want to support the podcast, go ahead and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested in this episode or in stuff we talk about in Thomas Outdoors in general, which is human-wildlife interactions, nature, conservation, hunting and fishing, rewilding, and this sort of things. And also, if you want to support me and help me sit at night and edit those episodes, you can now make sure that I have enough caffeine to keep me going. So you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Outdoors, link in the description of the show, and you can buy me a coffee. That will be a great help. So yeah, that's all folks. Uh, and now without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Irish Cave Bones with Dr. Ruth Carden. Welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. Thank you very much, Tommy. Yeah. (laughs) It's good to to meet you. Good to meet you. Yes, yes. (laughs) I've I've listened to a lot of the podcasts now over the last, you know, year or so. And, you know, when I get time, usually when I'm driving. Um, And yeah, very interesting topics. Very interesting topics. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And uh, uh, what a a great recommendation. (laughs) You're, 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 you know, like 
you probably this is this is a record for me because um i think it's like a three years when we started talking about doing this podcast and there was something yeah. like so the previous record was two years so that's a learning for anyone just be persistent things will happen when the time is right so that's yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> that's 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 that thing that's, that's i i'm that. i'm a firm believer in better late than never <laughs> yes absolutely so i i think that the time is the time finally came it's a, it's a <laughs> good good to have you good to talk <laughs> to you i had some other thought but i just lost it anyway um ruth so before we start before we jump into uh all the interesting fa- facts how do you how do you describe yourself are you describe yourself as zoo archaeologist are you uh arch- just archaeologist how would how would you or is it even possible um, to put a label on the person who does so many things <laughs> yeah it's 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 one of those things um i've lots of interests that cross multidisciplines so um at the heart of it i am a zoologist oh zoologist. my training so my my degrees are in zoology uh, my primary degree my bse and then my phd which was on the paleoecology of the giant deer in Ireland, but it covered extant deer, so it covered fallow deer, seeker deer, uh, red deer, um, white-tailed deer, black-tailed deer, moose and roe deer. So, you know, by gathering information from those living species, we can then apply it to the extinct species, and I measured a lot of bones, a lot of bones, <laughs> and, um, you know, correlated body measurements to bone measurements and so on, and body weights and so on. So um, after that, I got, you know, I was very interested in deer. So my deer interest started very early. And um, because I was dealing with bones a lot, I got very interesting in, interest in animal bones. Um, and originally I wanted to be a vet, but that that didn't happen. because That's I didn't not uncommon, you know, when I talk <laughs> to the scientists, a lot of them say the same thing. Like it started, I want to be a vet. And then it's like, yeah. no, it's actually not, not what I want. Well, I didn't get the points in the leaving cert, so oh, okay. <laughs> you know, there is that. So that, big so that decision was made for you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'm actually, I did think about going back after I finished uh, my BSc, my primary degree, um, but I was happy on the track that I was on then. So I stuck with what I was doing. And um, because I was interested in bones, I got very interested in archaeology um, and the ancient history of our Irish animals and I did a night course a year night course adult evening course on Irish archaeology in New City while I was doing my PhD and uh, yeah I got I got uh, in contact then with one of the staff members in archaeology he was Mersh O'Sullivan who's now retired uh, but we're still in contact and he asked me to examine some deer antler uh, artifacts from the Mound of Hostages in County Meath, the big archaeological site there. And I was a bit nervous to begin with because it's, you know, it's something I knew quite well. And that opened up a door into archaeology and animal bones and so on. And I was supplying animal reference collections to uh, skeletal collections to the National Museum, to the Natural History Museum as well. So I got to know bones of animals quite well. And then I got to know their history quite well, the archaeology history, as well as modern uh, analysis and so on. And um, yeah, I, I started building my own reference collection, Skeletal reference, reference Collection. And 
then while I was working in the museum, I worked in the museum as a technical assistant for just under a year. Um, I discovered all these bones lying around the place <laughs> in boxes that were crumbling and, you know, just forgotten layers of dust and so on. And I, you know, inquired what these were and they said, oh, they're, they're like ancient, the ancient bones excavated from Irish caves from the late 1800s to about mid 1900s now. Oh, well, where's the list? Where's the list of species? We don't have one. Whoa. We have the original notebooks that they were noses when they were excavated, but they were never checked. So I said, well, can I do a project on these? And they said, yes, of course. <laughs> and that's what started my life on bones and animals and ancient history and the whole colonization of Ireland by animals and humans and all of that interest. So, so that was a ongoing personal project that I did in the weekends and stuff. Wow. Um, we, we got, we got like a little bit of funding. I, I teamed up with Helen Lewis in UCD archeology span and uh, we got a little bit of funding for like for a summer uh, back in 2008, I think it was um, from the heritage council to do a preliminary kind of sweep on things. And I just kept going after that. So we, we've discovered some interesting, <laughs> to say the least, uh, uh, bits of information that, you know, from that project, which is still ongoing, but I'm hoping, I'm, I'm, I was gonna finish it last year, but then COVID came and the museum closed down. So, um, so I'm on track to finish it within the next year or two years, depending on my time, because I do it on my weekends or on my holidays. So it's, it's, you know, it's not funded. So all the research that has come out has been unfunded. It's like scraping together bits and bobs and like self-funded. I've self-funded a lot of the stuff. Is there, is um, there a way to donate or, or support you in any way? Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking of because the reindeer story blew things out of the water we'll talk about that in a second yeah <laughs> um, um i'm thinking of I, i've taken some really nice photographs of of uh, the bones these butchered bones um and i was going to make a collage and sell the print in aid to basically get money to radiocarbon date more bones so there's a few on my list which we can talk about later that need, need to be need to be done because there's a question mark over their original date because of the methods being used at that time. Um, but yeah, later in the year, once the reindeer paper has been published, hopefully at this stage, it could be around by Christmas. So it might be good timing with Santa Claus and so on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, once that's come out, I'll, I'll do this fundraiser. I'll just set up on a private site and, or Etsy or something. And um you know, just just do it to raise money that way. Now we hope. You know, I'm working with a collaborative group of people between the UK, uh, Europe, Ireland, and potentially America, or sorry, Canada as well. And um, we hope to apply for funding to do a larger project. But sure, you know, it's it's very hard to get funding these days. Yeah. So just yeah, well, just to for, first of all, kudos for doing that in your own time. Like, how many people would do that? I mean, like. You know, absolutely. If you have that website going, um, you know, I'm more than happy to share that with all the listeners and viewers. Thank That's you one. very much. And, and 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 I think that you should get a like a website anyway. It's you know, put the, like a donate button, right? <laughs> and and plaster that link everywhere in your Twitter profile and everywhere. 
<laughs> because a lot of people would support. I, I think it's fantastic. Like, first of all, that you are willing to take on the project like this out of your own interest and how how this is not getting funding it's like beyond me but there's a separate subject but i'm sure there'll be man, many people who would you know even on the patreon page or something surely yeah i, I never really thought about it until you know, a few people have said this to me since um and it's just something i suppose i never thought of i wasn't mm -hmm. a, you know i wasn't aware because i'm not in the whole That's a um, that's a problem. People like you, they're focused <laughs> on the job. You just want to get the job done, not just yeah. you know ask people for money. But even there's a website called I think uh, buymeacoffee.com, right? Which, which is super simple. You just connect your PayPal account and you have like a small profile page when you say like, hey, this is what I do. Buy me a coffee, and this is like literally, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, you know, a lot of people who who are interested in that's like, oh, you know, like I can, I guess I can buy Rupee coffee. But then right. it's not a coffee, it's just a small donation. But as you yeah. know, those donations pile up. And and then and even if it's you know you use it for coffee, then I guess it's fine too, right? Yeah. Oh uh, well, I'm so used to making my own coffee. I've perfected my own cappuccinos at home during already. COVID. I don't think I could go back to a, a shop coffee. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Nothing like yeah, nothing like I, do stuff at home. <laughs> exactly. You get used to a lot of things. Well, I work from home, like COVID in one sense. Um, you know, it didn't affect my workplace because I work from home anyway. Um, but uh, it just affected the the contracts got you know postponed and pushed it forward all the time and so on. So so last year was a pretty quiet year for me. So in in one sense, if the museum was open, I would have actually gone in and um, you know completed as much as possible. So there's not uh, that you know there's about I'd say there's about three to four months. Three, about three months full-time work left to do to finish to finish about eight cave worth of bones which would amount to probably oh you see i've lost count i stopped counting a long time ago because it was just like what's the point of <laughs> I, re the end, I remember you, know? you you posted a picture like a massive like a like a box of bones is like oh i have my you know my weekend sorted or something along these lines yeah. i look at it like my god how it's even possible how it's even possible to recognize what animal is it are you are you able to pick a piece of the bone and just say like oh i think it's a goat or i think it's a it's a pig or do you do like any you know uh, well well my thought process starts with what type of bone it, it's the fragments from you know a lot of people think oh it's easy because it's bones they think of whole bones but They're all fragments, you know, shards of bones. But um, there's they have all diagnostic characteristics, you know, muscle scars and the shape of the bone, the thickness oh. of the bone. You can you can get a sam, you know. It, it's kind of hard, but like it's like a flip deck goes in my brain and it like lands on the bone that's actually from so a humerus leg, you know, a, an arm bone or the front leg bone or a femur hind leg bone or a piece of the pelvis or something. And it just uh, flicks at that, and then uh, and then uh, then the second deck rolls in, going well. Is it like a runner? You know, is it like a, an animal that runs? So it's a, if it's long and slender, or if it's something like a digger or a burr, like a badger, it'll be short and stout and fat. And generally, brown bear bones are heavy; they're very dense. So when you have a fragment, it's like that's why it's important to hold the fragment. So when people post things up on the uh, internet, like on Twitter. Ruth, what's this? You know, can you help? It's like this is where it be, 
because you have a there's a sense of feel and texture and weight that you need to measure, which you can't measure on the on the photograph. But with brown bear, it's it's very dense bone, it's very heavy, it's very characteristically. So something of a size, a shard of a certain size, and you know it's like you know from a femur, but it's not from a cow, which would be equally as big because it's too heavy, it's too dense, you know that way. So it's it's like little flip decks in my brain go with the type bone first. So I tend to separate periskeletal elements, and then I go into each group each uh, mound of skeletal elements so i'll do all the humorous humori first and then each of the species within that and then i just identify them that way <clears throat> so it, it just it's it's years of dissecting animals and preparing my own reference wow. collection and studying the bones and and making sketches and drawings and so on and it just becomes embedded so yeah and 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 so this is, this is and do you have any any way of then validating that through i don't know dna analysis or anything like that so is it is it like once you categorize the bones that's it or then you can more specifically go like well i think these are bears and then you go and do more specific yeah you can it's costly that's where funding is important um so well if 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 for example i got a fragment of bone that has a lot of diagnostic material on it and i'm not I'm like, mm, it could be bare, but it could be something else. I'm not sure. You know, there's certain things that you just, and you leave it for a few days and then it comes back to you and you go back to it and you say, actually, yeah, it is bare. But in those cases, sometimes I'll actually email a copy of, you know, take a photo and email it to a colleague in the UK to say, and have a discussion with him and say, because he, you know, he, he's more experienced than I am. He's retired now. But, um, you know, Terry O'Connor and, I'll have a little conversation with him and I'll say, I think it's this, but I'm not sure. I'm doubting myself a bit. And he goes, he'll come back going either, yeah, you're right. Or no, it could be such such and such. And then I'll look that up. And if, you know, if I have the reference material, I'll compare side to side and so on. So, so, but there are fragments that you're like, it's, it's an animal bone, but that's it. I don't know what it's from. I don't know what it is because they're shards. And at that point, what you can do if if you had the lab <laughs> and the people and the funding is uh, basically it's it, it's using a zooms. It's called the zooms method, which is a zoo archaeological kind of method. But essentially what you do is shove all these unidentified shards into something like a washing machine, for example, like a, an, an analogy. And then you throw in all the sequences of animals that you have, like that you think is from the site and then you add in more so usually it's a country worth of sequences of animals presence from you know 50,000 years ago to modern and if those shards have you know once you ex once the machine extracts the dna if those shards match up with any of the sequences they stick together and then at the end you you can say oh well there's cattle there's red deer there's roe deer there's lynx there's brown bear there's whatever there because all the things stuck to to, to each other um so that that's a very useful method um, so then so sorry require... so then 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 you're getting information of all the species that you had in the washing machine but you yeah. I, i guess it's then hard to say like th this particular fragment is from exactly yeah you so you can do that. that or you can do that you could you can do that if you yeah if you do it separate each shard oh, okay. separately but there is a a mass 
like you can add them all in together because it's quicker and it's less costly than doing each one separately. Now, the, the prices in these things have come down all the time, which is good, but it's, it's still expensive. And you need the lab. That means you have to collaborate with people who have money, who are willing to spend their money doing your project. And generally it, it involves then the output needs to be a paper, a peer reviewed journal paper. Um, and that takes time as so well. You can't, so you can't just show up at the lab and say like, hey, I have like these number of bones. Can you just check that no. for me? <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. It, 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 seems, it, it seems like it seems like you're a person who's supposed who should have a machine like that in your you know kitchen or in your office, and you could check <laughs> like wish. that would that would be ideal. Stay like man, that's my own little private laboratory. Exactly, exactly. I, well, you would you would make a good use of it. I'm pretty sure. Ruth. Oh yeah, I would actually. Yeah. <laughs> can but, you give yeah, us an idea? Can you give us idea what's the cost of that? Just the ballpark. Um, I don't know, like, it's a couple of thousand, like, you know, it, it, it depends on how many you have, it depends on what you want to know, you know, how detailed you want to know, do you want genus or species? But and, we're talking about thousands of dollars. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, euros. yeah. Wow. Like, you know, the way I see that kind of work, I would willingly collaborate with people to get it done, but until, until I finish the entire caves and then have a full inventory of what we have. Um, there's no point in starting that now. So down the road, yes, but now it's not because until you know what you have, you don't know how finite the material is. So the museum tends to, you know, not not let you to just not let you to sample or destroy a sample like a, a specimen if there's a finite level available. Um, so, but until you know what you have, how do you know what you're destroying and how important that is in the long term? So it's a balancing act. So the way I see that kind of work, you're looking at the shards where I'm like, I don't know what they are. Um, I'll do that at the end of the project. Gotcha. Gotcha. And how, how um, your work is affected by the age of the of the bone because you said like you're taking that and say you know how how heavy it is how dense it is what texture it is but surely this oh, maybe I, i'm saying surely like i know what i'm talking about i don't know what i'm talking about it's a question right is the age of that bone affects its weight and texture or anything or they're pretty much preserved um it, you see the the type the, the uh, depositional environment where the bone has been has been for x number of years is important so um so that decre that decrease what level of preservation of the dna and the collagen so you need the collagen to radiocarbon date and you need the dna to extract and you know stabilize the topes as well um but it within limestone caves in ireland where the majority of these bones are have been excavated from the the actual the the environment itself has preserved them really well as opposed to in an open archaeological site above the ground surface um, so we're lucky in so far as that majority of the bones coming from the caves you will extract dna good quality dna and you will get you know a good date that doesn't have huge 95 percent con 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 uh, confidence in, in 
intervals in it. Um, so like if the longer the tails are on either side, you're like, well, where is the exact date? Whereas if everything is shorter and most, you know, more closer together with a big spike, then it's like, yeah, the date is like 25 as opposed to 22 to 15, you know? Um, so, yeah, so the level of preservation is very important. So, the, you know, and then the amount of bone that you have. Now, for, for radiocarbon days, you need about two grams of bone um, to be safe. Um, for, for zooms, it would be a smaller amount. So they, you know, you need about, it's less than a gram. I think it's like a half a gram or something to be sure. I'd have to check that up, but it's around about that. Um, and stabilized isotopes, I think is somewhere around about the same as well. So, so there are actually two types of measurements. Let's say you're trying to figure out how old is the bone, and this is where yeah. radiocarbon dating comes to exactly. play. And then you try to figure out what is it when you yeah. do the zoom or your 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 like a the, analysis. The yeah. Right, yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. So because, so um, once you know the date, you you know you you then say, well, exactly, you know, what is it? And then if you know what it is, then you can place that animal in time in Ireland and then look at the um, the current evidence we have for the paleo climate and the paleo environment at that stage. And how does that fit in with the animal's adaptations to that environment? Um, it's fantastic. Listen, tell us now about the reindeer. <laughs> and you you like the the fascinating thing for me is that you are able to reconstruct the whole assemblages of animals which is mm. like almost well not almost but but painting a picture of how the past looked like it's yeah. it's, just, it's just fantastic like it it's so is is so stimulating to my imagination because i can almost see all those ancient animals roaming around and like and this is you all getting from from the remains from the bones exactly yeah so a lot of these bones it's like some of them haven't been identified before like not even within the original notebook so that's kind of exciting um so a lot of the reindeer bones that I looked at so far a lot of them have just been bundled in with just reindeer but there's no other um di differentiation now some of them are actually red deer as well so red deer and reindeer are quite similar in terms of anatomy. Now, there are subtle differences, but looking at it at a glance, if you're not trained up on reindeer anatomy, skeletal anatomy, you think, yeah, it's the same. Um, or sorry, yeah, reindeer and red deer, they're the same. But yeah, the reindeer, I can't talk too much about it because the paper isn't published. So only sure. what was presented in the program. Sure. But um, basically the story, you know, the like I was going through... Um, these bones of Castle Pook Cave and it was on a Saturday morning. I remember it quite well. And <laughs> looking at these vertebrae and thinking, wow, that, that's a deep cut. God. Yeah. And then getting the microscope out and looking at it going, yeah, it's actually made on what we term green bone. So green bone is fresh bone. So it's like if you went out and shot a deer and started butchering it up, the bone at that point is in a fresh state or a green state. Um, it hasn't rotted down, it hasn't become hard or lost collagen through, you know, de uh, decomposition. Um, and when you cut through bone, fresh bone like that, it's like cutting a knife through butter. So both sides will be flat. So the little bone spicules inside.
inside the bone, you get this very flat uh, edge to it. And it's, it's, it's just like somebody went through with a hot knife and went boom, and you have this very flat edge. Now, if that bone was left for a long period of time and rotted down so there was no flesh left on it and was just sitting there in situ and somebody came along, say, you know, three years later or a year later or even six months later and then even longer time later, if you were to do the same um, type of chop or a cut, it would shatter and it would be jagged edges. So when I just, when I looked at these things under the microscope, I kind of pulled back a bit, went, hmm, <laughs> this is interesting. Okay. And then I, I, I continued on, I put it to one side and continued on with my work. And I found two more that had different types of cut marks and chop marks, but very definite again on green bone. So it happened that near or at the time of death of the reindeer. Um, and so these you are, you know, at the time it's a, it's a reindeer. Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah, identified the bones as reindeer. And I had the comparative skeletal material from the museums in Edinburgh at the time. Um, I've since, uh, just before Brexit, I delivered them back. So this was this is going back to 2017. So this has been under the covers for a long time due to funding issues and time issues and so on and so forth, because we had to do a series of experiments then afterwards. But um, so... I compared the reindeer bone, what I identified as reindeer, because I said it's definitely not red deer, and I know red deer really, really well. Um, so I compared it with the Scottish reference material, and indeed it was reindeer. Um, so I took photographs, and I sent them over to Terry, my, my good friend and colleague over in the UK. And I said, what do you think? And I didn't say anything else. <laughs> Because I wanted his, I wanted his honest opinion. Very smart, very smart. Yeah, Not biased his his opinion. Exactly. You know, I wanted independent verification, and he got back and he said, "Yeah, they're they're uh, they're recently, you know, they're cut into fresh green bone. Uh, you can see, you know, the the um, the marks, you know, the straight flat edge, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the build up. Then when you when you chop through the bone, you know, if you if you chop through butter with a kind of a, a knife towards the end you'll get like a little slump where one half will fall off but then the other half has a little slump on, on the at the side of the bottom you can see this in in the actual cut marks on the bone so it's like the because you get the knife or the tool pushes down into the bone so it pushes some of the bone into deeper into the bone and when it comes out there's this little pile of bone bits down the end so to speak um and he was like yeah 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 and he goes what is it you know what species is it? <laughs> how old is it <laughs> i said uh, it's reindeer <laughs> from castle pook and he went what i said yeah and he said uh you know how old are they and i said i don't know we've no radiocarbon dates so um so he said right what are you going to do and i said i'm going to apply for funding to try and get radiocarbon dates to to date a couple of reindeer bones and i had some other reindeer bones i wanted dated as well so seven in total and um so i applied to the irish quaternary association which is a membership group a small group in ireland but it has international links and we got i got what was it two yeah two dates from them funded 
And then myself, another another colleague on uh, Alan McDevitt on the project, we applied to the Royal Irish Academy when they had, had announced their funding round. And we got five dates, like four or five dates from them. So I was like, oh. so, so yeah, so sent them off, got the museum permission, got the licenses approved, etc. Sent them off to um, Crono in Belfast. And um, they came back about three months later or so, three or four months later. <laughs> and I, I opened the document and went, no, closed the document and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, no, this has to be wrong. This has to be wrong. So then, so then I asked uh, another colleague of mine to, you know, who, who is part of the group. Um, and I said, can you look at these dates? I didn't tell her what they were on or whatever. And I said, are the dates all okay? Are they strong dates? Are they good dates? Are they, you know, the, you know, are, can you believe in the dates? Have you got confidence in the dates? R- run your programming stuff. So, uh, so Rena, Rena McGuire up in Queens. Um, she she did her magic on it and uh, she goes, no, they're really strong dates, they're really strong dates. Yeah, yeah, that, like you, you can believe those dates. And I went, okay, she goes, well, what's this about? <laughs> I said, I'll tell you a while. <laughs> so I sat on the information for two weeks. I, you know, Alan McDevitt, who I applied with, you know, for the Royal Irish Academy dates, I didn't tell him <laughs> the answer because I couldn't believe it. And I, I was going through and I was checking everything. I was checking to make sure I got the coding right on the bones and the dates and the codes matched up. And you know, I was going, this this can't be real. <laughs> so uh, so eventually I told him and he, and he was speechless for, you know, 10 minutes or so. And he goes, can I call you back? I went, yeah, you can. Because <laughs> that was my response, really. <laughs> you knew so, what's um, going through his head <laughs> yeah because it's big it's big like you know as i said in the tv program we have we have dates now of evidence of humans in ireland going back to thirty-three thousand years ago which which is huge it's before the ice age you know there are human uh humans in britain at that time so you know it's not a, a million miles away we've humans in in europe northern europe at that time uh mainland continent so it's not a huge leap but still it's like uh, you know we're at the edge of everything you know the edge of europe the edge of of civilization almost um it's just like wow it's a and then we have two other and we have two other dates as well which which suggests, you know, that they did follow the reindeer uh, and hunted them by following their migratory path patterns. So, right. seasonal things. So I get yeah, into the, at, at the time. Was that the time um, that that the Ireland and Britain were still connected to the mainland? No, Europe? no. So at how, did they, how did the reindeer get there earlier? Before well, that, at, well, at thirty-three thousand years ago, there was um, what looks like um, land bridges. There was oh, still so so the sea level was way way lower than what it is now, and you had a northern land bridge as well as a south uh, eastern land bridge. So they were and, connected, and also it stretched down towards uh, North France. So North France was much larger as well because of the lower sea level. So you know, reindeers are very good swimmers if they're going over you know short periods of short stretches of of sea or water, then it's not a big deal to them. So, so they were yeah. so they were migrating, and it seems like humans were following them. Yeah, and, and that's what they did in Europe anyway. They followed the the migratory 
you know, reindeer as well as red deer as well, red deer to a certain extent, but mainly red reindeer and horses, wild horses they followed as well, which also had a seasonal distribution. So how the how the how the whole landscape looked like at the time you surely can can tell like what what other like so what other animals were there and the, i presume these were like a hunter gatherers yeah just... hunter gatherers um yeah it's an interesting question we don't have too too much data from that period of time in ireland um we did like getting back to the radio carbon dating in 1997 peter woodman um as al published um about 100 dates, 100 radiocarbon dates from various sites in Ireland, as well as the, the cave material. But that was using um, a different method for radiocarbon dating, a more cruder method. And in the early 2000s, you know, the, the method changed where they filtrated uh, the, the sample before they actually put it through the dating machine. And, um, you know, much better dates were coming out. There were, you know, matching in with other like ice core like dates and stuff like they were just in more um what's the word in uh in tandem almost or you know more similar so it just made you know more sense um but also it got rid of all the contaminants that were in the, the bone that you know would have been sitting around for donkey's years um so all of the 1997 dates are god basically, because we redated, um, we redated a lot of Casapook and uh, some Balamintra and what was the other? God, I only published this paper in 2020. <laughs> That's kind of my brain. Um, we, we, uh, there was Foley Cave. There was another cave. I think it was Shannon Cave. But it was mainly Castlepook because it's a, it's a large cave that had a lot of, used to have a lot of material. Um, and we found that things moved, things jumped by using, comparing the new methods with the 1997 published material. So things moved by two to 4,000 years, and in some oh. cases up to kind of near enough to 10,000 years. So that, that's a huge difference. <laughs> Backwards. So, so it's, it, back, they were older. Back, yeah, older, older, yeah. So there was, um, what was it? There was reindeer after the ice age so in the late glacial period of age kind of 12 11 000 years ago in ireland and that jumped back to before the ice age <laughs> that was a That's huge significant jump. yeah significant so you know it's it's interesting that we we lost reindeer at that time um but we still have reindeer at that time <laughs> uh, from other work <laughs> um but but then we have the the question mark say over the links we have links dated from the 1997 paper to mesolithic to early mesolithic period in ireland about nine thousand years ago um so you know one of the things i want to get redated is that links because if that jumps back that you know is significant enough that maybe the links weren't here when humans arrived and maybe there were you know but then we have humans coming in now <laughs> So I have to I have to kind of factor in that, but basically, if they jump backwards, then it's it might, you know, you get into the whole rewilding kind of conversation, um, and while it's nice to introduce species X, Y, and Z until we know what's happening in the past, 
and what appeared when, I don't think we can fully get into rewilding and reintroductions or introductions of species because we don't really know what we had. But also we have to then tune in with the environment and the ecosystem. So when we have those species at a certain time, what was happening with the vegetation and the ecosystems and what did Ireland look like? So there's not enough evidence to say what Ireland looked like 33,000 years ago. Presumably there was more forests and, and open areas and so on, but we we don't, because this this work now is pushing humans back further in time, there was no interest really to go further in time before. So now this opens up doors for the paleoecologists to step up and say, well, what was life in Ireland like at that time? Let's start doing cores or let's you know do pollen analysis or whatever, try and find sediments. The problem will be trying to find deposits because the ice age, you know, the ice glacier came in and took a majority of Ireland's top half or whatever of Ireland surface and just wiped it clean. But you know, it's it's an interesting question of, you know, what what was there and what what did Ireland look like? And at the moment, I can't tell you really. <laughs> so I can tell you that there was there was um, brown bear was there at that time. There was wolves. There was reindeer. There was a bit of red deer as well. And um, essentially, that's as far as I know. Okay. Oh, hair, Irish hair. Irish hair. So, no mention of wild boar. Wild boar is an interesting one. Yeah, um, that's another key species I want to get bones dated because there haven't been enough bones dated and certainly not from the caves of, of what, what you know what's termed wild boar. Wild boar is an interesting one because, you know, from what we know now, because we've no dated remains back from the caves really or a lot of dated remains, they suddenly appear in the Mesolithic when humans properly arrive and settle and set up camps and so on. Um, uh, and then they kind of go through, they're found in New Grange in County Meath, you know, about, it's a Bronze Age, about 3,000, 3,500 years ago. So they are dated there. And then they kind of disappear <laughs> because the problem with wild boar is wild boar bones are very, very similar to pig bones. And a lot of people will actually say well if it's big it has to be wild boar but that's not the case wild boar <clears throat> excuse me wild boar true wild boar isn't that big it's only what we think of wild boar now today we think they're huge because they've been in one sense bred to be that big because you know there's the element of the hunting and the meat production and farming and so on but true wild boar wasn't that big not big as we see today um, so it's very hard to tell wild boar from domestic pig. Yes, you can, you know, you can do analysis with some of the tusks, you know, the teeth, the canine teeth. They're much bigger. They are bigger in wild boar. But is that a factor of the environment and age? <laughs> yeah. Or is it like or, a species or whatever? Yeah. Ours are hybrid. So there was mention of potential hybrids like inter interbreeding in Newgrange, but that answer hasn't been resolved as yet because you have both domestic and wild boar appearing in Newgrange. 
Um, some people believe wild boar disappear after the Iron Age, but I, I, I don't have any evidence to, to support that. So you, you are probably the best person to ask that question. And can you just explain to me and all the listeners and viewers the difference between wild boar and domestic pig? Because they are the same. They, they're, they're essentially the same animals, Sus scrafa, right? Yeah, same and species. We, and we also know that if you cut loose the regular pink pig, it mm. starts to getting brown. Their their mm. their snout is getting longer. It, it's it is unbelievable how it starts to transform from yeah, those after so, a few generations. So, so is it like because we have these two types of naming conventions? Like there's the one that has like two parts, like Sus Crafa, and then there's like a sec- yeah, you know, you know better there's, than um, some people refer to domestic as Sus Crafa domestica. Yeah, so there are these two types of naming animals that have two parts, and then there was like mm. has three parts. I think it's, yeah. it's also important to. I don't remember how they're how they're called. So is it once you start using like a three parts name, then when you actually can differentiate, is there any difference, or is it like a debate between the lumpers and 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 splitters, and you know, it's a yeah, it's 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 one of these things because genetically they're hard to distinguish unless you go into full genomics. So you want the full genome. So you want to sequence it entirely. And then you'll be able to pick up the markers for wild boar and the markers for domestic pig. So by comparing the full genome, you should be able to then see the difference between wild boar and and domestic pig. It's kind of, in in one sense, using Suscrofa is kind of, arbitrary you could be talking about either one <laughs> so yeah. it's really annoying but um it's it's very hard like i know that if i look at like i i've come across lots of pig bones and archaeological assemblages and and the cave bones and certainly the cave bones do look bigger they are metrically bigger in size compared to um to the domestic to two other pig bones from from archaeological sites and generally people will say, well, if it's a site that's aged, you know, Mesolithic, it must be wild boar. But if it's Bronze Age, it's maybe a mix of the two. But if it's like medieval, it's probably domestic pig. But these are assumptions that might completely have no reflection in reality. Yeah, so we, we don't know enough. We really don't know enough. We don't even know, you know, like, there are no dates. All I can tell you now at the moment is there are no radiocarbon dates of wild boar pre-Mesolithic in Ireland. But that's not due to the fact that we have loads of samples dated. We've hardly any samples dated. So we could actually have wild boar in Ireland pre-Mesolithic sitting on a shelf in the museum. Nobody. But we don't know because there's been no funding. There's been nobody interested in doing that work. So that's something with the, the funds that I wanted to try and set up and get donations to do the links and date some wild boar remains and see actually really like, go, you know, delve into the cave system, work with my colleague, Helen Lewis, go into the stratigraphy, you know, because things are get, things get mixed up in the cave because the water keeps coming in and out. So you have water levels coming in and like underground rivers and stuff. So it's like a washing machine, things get mixed up together. 
So you can't say the top layer is the youngest and the bottom layer is the oldest. Because at times you have giant deer sitting on the top layer and you have like sheep sitting on the bottom layer and you're like, oh, that's not right. Um, but so that's where dating is really important. Um, so if, if we could date, you know, if we can look at the stratigraphy in the caves and maybe then in the deeper ends or go in and excavate, which I hope to get funding to excavate um, further into Castle Pook cave um and then just do it properly with a modern look and a modern method and and see then okay well these ones could be old but we don't know how old and then date them right because right. even even just to say we definitely had a wild boar population is very important because there is a question mark that maybe what was brought in during the Mesolithic, might have been true wild boar. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's fun. And yeah, I heard, I heard. Like, <laughs> I need to compose myself because there's so many questions I want to ask. That oh, I, don't know which, I don't know which one is first. But um, so let's finish on on the wild boar and domestic pig. So, would it be the, true to say that the, really the difference between domestic pig and the wild boar is roughly like? the same as if you talk about domestic pig from Europe and you take a domestic pig from, I don't know, Philippines and you compare them. They're, they're going to be domestic pig, but a little bit different, but not Different fully. breeds. Yeah, yeah. Different so breeds. is it like along these lines, the difference between the wild boar and domestic pig? No, wild boar is a true wild species. Like it's, it's a true, it's, it's the originator. So yeah, but I mean, the difference gen so. genetically difference and the, di are, and the difficulty of tell them apart from yeah, that's that's where you have to look at the whole genome, um, because there's so many similarities between them, and you can see like as you said, if you let what you know domestic pigs out and over a few generations they revert back to their wild uh, appearance and and so on, so it shows you how genetically related they are. And how they adapt to the wild um but e e the only way is to look at full genomes now the costs of when i originally thought of this question back in the early 2000s full genome genomics were just kind of coming on board a bit really expensive to do <clears throat> you know the equipment was just horrendously expensive and not many labs did it now it's more or less part and parcel it's a normal thing that that you know the costs have come down a lot so it's something <clears throat> excuse me it's something that if if we got some dates back then you know once you know where they are or when they are occurring we can then go to like a colleague like maybe you know somebody in the UK or somebody in Ireland and say you know do you want to collaborate on this project I've no funding <laughs> do you have funding <laughs> um <laughs> Here's my begging bowl, um, uh, and and see if we can get some genomics going, you know, mm -hmm. gotcha. and see if yeah. they actually are true wild boar or not. Yeah, how much how much red tape you have to deal with when you're doing this? Because I, I I'm I'm assuming there are two levels of it. Like on one level, you have like you mentioned, you have all need to have all the licenses and permissions, yeah. and which probably there are good reasons for do that but it seems like uh, it just hurts me that 
people like you who doing has such a fantastic job have to deal with all this paperwork really which is not moving us forward but then i think there is surely also red tape which is my my main main thrust of this question red tape related to like what if you find something that we don't like that you right like if you find like indeed there were like a loads of wild boar running around in ireland right there there is a substantial group of people who will not like that at all right is is that something that you had to deal with too um, well, first of all, I'll take the first the first part sure. of that question because it's just I'm really bad, guys. I'm always asking those <laughs> compound questions. So thank you, thank you for <laughs> no problem. Um, the first part is easy in one sense. Like with the museum, you have to apply for. Usually, you you submit a overview document of your project and what you hope to achieve, and the reasons why you want to essentially destroy a piece of of bone or whatever it is in the collection um you know first of all you have to ask how how worth it is it like how important is it because once you once i have the full inventory i'll be able to at least go to the museum and say actually you have x number of these uh bones from from this layer or from this cave so you can spare one or two for example um and you still have stuff left if it's the last two bits, then you know you have to present a more, I suppose, uh, compelling argument to say why I want to destroy the last two bits of these bones. And I can understand where the museum is coming from because it's part of the collection, it's our heritage, they're looking after our heritage and so on, um, the people of Ireland. And um, you know, then you know. Once they go through your project and see the reasoning and you give like, these are my collaborators and the labs are great and they've all that state-of-the-art equipment, et cetera, good success rate, blah, blah, blah. They say yes or no. And then if they say yes, well, then you have a license to alter. So that's taking the sample from the bone and then export across the border to get it radiocarbon data to, say, Northern Ireland. Um, and then you get the answers. Now, the second part... So, so on the first, but so on the first, but is it hard to do? Is it just a, is it just a, a matter of doing paperwork and it's going to happen, or is it like a, always an element of like, oh, I don't know whether I get permission? There is, there is an element of I don't know, because you you have to, the more facts you can present to the museum, the better. So there's no, you know, there's no point in saying going to the museum tomorrow and say, can I take ten wild boar bones from blah 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 caves. And do you know send for radiocarbon dating? And invariably, their answer will be, "Well, how many wild boar bones are there? How how many are there in total?" And you know, it's something they should know of their collections. But because I'm doing this project, I'll be able to actually able to tell them. So this, you know, for, so for later on next year, hopefully, this will be a, a much easier process. And again, then you have to say, well, we want to know the answer to this because of X, Y, Z. So you have to present a compelling uh, argument. Um, and with the museum, they could always turn around and say no. And that's where you can appeal it. But invariably, if it's no the first time, it's probably going to be no the second time. Um, and I can understand where they're coming from because they're trying to safeguard the collections. Um, and that's where you're like, well, 
maybe there will be an advancement of radiocarbon dating in the next 10 years and they need a much smaller sample and therefore you're not destroying the whole fragment and so on. So there's a bit of a waiting game there as well. Sure, sure. Okay. But, but you, you know, but the museum are reasonable. Like they're not going to, like if I went to them and say, can I, you know, chop up and mulch up the only human being bone if we found it from 33,000 years ago, I think their answer will be no. <laughs> <laughs> and I would actually accept that because, you know, I'm like chancing my arm here because I kind of know the answer anyway. Um, but, you know, it, like there are, while there are, wild board inverted commas uh, bone remains in from within the caves um, there's tusks there's jaws there's postcranial material like you know so there are enough that you can take one of those and then you know and that's something you would present to the museum in your written document and have a chat on the phone with and so on um, so yeah but yeah I'm not making out that the museum is the bad guy I'm just you know I'm I, I Put, after working in there for so many years, I can fully understand where they're coming from, and they want to safeguard the collection. Yeah, that's yeah. So that's you know, their reasonable. primary drive. So that's reasonable. So now to the yeah, second. Exactly. Now to the second part, <clears throat> so which, is, second, which is inevitably you know, more political. So science is science. I've never hidden the results. The results are the results, and whether some people like them and some people don't, they will be presented. They will be put through peer review, journal, and published. And that's the way I've always felt. Um, when we did the, the Red Deer, the Origins of Red Deer in Ireland paper and work, again, self-funded, uh, with a few extra bits and bobs gathered along the way, including, um, oh, I should remember this, we got some funding from a, from a, a garage, um, a car garage out in the Nace Road, Long Mile Road. Wow. For for some of that. So I'm not adverse to taking funding from wow. just certain bodies. It's like whoever wants to fund, they'll get Everybody go and, and service so their car in there because they're good guys. They deserve yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I should look it up actually before we finish. <laughs> you can add it in. Yeah, um, I can add it in. Yeah, sure, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I'll make a note of that because it'd be good to get a plug in for them because without them, we couldn't get the last uh, date that we wanted. Um, so that actually helped enormously, yeah. but like the red, you'll, you'll, them, you'll send me that. You send me that back, and I put it in the I show will. notes. Great, that's, that's thank perfect. you, Tommy. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was published back in 2012, so it was a long time ago. I can't keep all the information in my head. Yeah, but, for sure. But but um, you know, like a lot of people saying, Kerry were worried that what they called their native red deer weren't going to turn into weren't going to be native anymore they're going to be a recent introduction and i i got some interesting conversations from people saying you know well if if it doesn't turn out to what we want it to turn out you're not going to be welcome back here anymore and you know mm -hmm. you shouldn't That's publish it about. and so on and you know it's just like well that's science is science you can't hide from the results you know it's it's a quest for knowledge And until we know what we're dealing with, we can't do anything about it in a worthwhile way. Um, so I, I pursued, and, and as it happened, the results are the results, and it showed that Kerry red deer are the only population in Ireland that are descended from a Neolithic introduction 5,000 years ago. So they're as close to native as you want to call it. Um, so, you know, they were all happy, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was touch and go. I got a few interesting phone calls and, you know, 
interesting Definitely. meetings and stuff. But it's like I, I, I'm not easily intimidated. Um, and, and the science speaks for itself. So, yes, if, if it turns out that we've, you know, if, for example, we got wild boar dating to 15,000 years ago or whatever, um, great. It is what it is. It is what it is. Exactly. You can't hide from science. And then we go from there into the next step. And some people will be happy and others won't be. And so what? Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> listen, this is, this is very encouraging that you have this attitude. But uh, unfortunately, you once again uh, confirm that there are, I, I think this is the worst thing possible, trying to pressurize scientists into like, oh, I don't like what you found. Like, what? It's terrible. I, I, I had a conversation and, with archaeologists about that as well. Yeah. Now. And that's where funding, that's where it's kind of, I suppose, in one sense, where if you can self-fund, you're not under any pressure uh -huh. from your funders. Yes. So if we do a crowdfunding kind of, you know, which essentially it will be a crowdfunding, mm -hmm. um, then you won't get the same pressures that you get if you got funded from a governmental body. You know, if not, I'm not saying that they would, but, you know, there could be a political story somewhere from some sort of a type of funder. You know, a, 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 I suppose an example would be any of the oil funders. If you got like Shell or something and you found that oil isn't good because of X, Y, Z. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's where I suppose with funding and maybe that's where in the back of my head, I'm a bit hesitant to ask for funding because I don't want to be controlled or mm -hmm. to be seen. But man, this crowdfunding thing, this is, this is way to go. I feel like this is way to go because there's a lot yeah. of people who would put money into that. And like you said, then you're truly independent. And, and tell me Ruth is like when you're sending those samples to the lab to do the analysis, is there like, is there, a, uh, you know, danger that then they gonna look like look at this as like, oh, what the hell did she want to do, right? We are funded by people who won't like that, or they have no idea. You're just sending. There's no idea. Okay. They have no idea because what you do, you fill it in a lot online form. You give it a code. You give each sample a code, and it's like, boom. Mm -hmm. That's all it's called, and gotcha. it's like, say, you know, <clears throat> you have your own code number for the bone. But, you know, you have to say three, one, two, three, bone sample, three, one, two, four, bone sample. Gotcha. You know, that kind of thing or antler sample or okay. tooth sample. So, so they don't know. And they, they don't just, know what is returning a result is. and you're interpreting the results then. Exactly. Yeah. So you get then back. What you get back is their um, unique number. So their lab code and then your code with that. And then you get the answer. Okay. So they don't have a clue what species you're doing or okay. what, what that's, you're doing or whatever. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's, that's yeah. good. Okay. Um, tell us now, like a question that is a few questions I want to like, can you explain now? Uh, we're going to switch switching gear a little bit with the giant deer in Ireland. There is, there is a, I don't remember exactly, but you're going to clarify that in a second. There is like a two species, am I correct, of this giant deer? Or is it like one is called Irish elk and the other is giant deer? Like there is a, there is a, I remember there is a, some confusion around that. Yeah, it's, it's not, 
Stephen Jay Gould um, did some work in the early days. He was a early, um, he, he was a big zoologist when I was doing uh, my PhD and, and my degree. And um, I don't know if he's dead now or not, but he certainly retired anyway. But um, yeah, he he kind of you know he famously called it the the Irish elk, giant Irish elk or Irish elk. Um, but it's it's a misnomer. It's it it's not an elk. <laughs> elk originated much uh, sooner in time. So deer, giant deer, are a member of the Cervinae family, which is they originated some like I think there's about two million years between the deer family and the elk family uh, in terms of um, evolution. I'm sorry, um, so, I'm sorry. So the elk family is the red deer in the elk family? No, red deer. So it's old world deer and new world deer would be the kind of, uh, I suppose. Okay, so, so let's back it up. When we talk yeah. about elk family, because you're talking about a, moose, moose. Oh, that's my question. Because yeah. uh, like for some reason, when I'm talking about elk, I'm, I'm thinking about the American elk, which is like red deer. Yeah. Okay, so this is why he called it elk, because that he means the elk like a moose and yeah. because of the palmation on the antlers yeah that giant deer that's why it's called irish elk yeah it's, okay so but it's like one guy who called it yeah but it's round and everybody took it up as irish elk and was the trend and so on so so it's like they're the same thing there's no two species it's just giant deer giant or giant irish deer but it's giant deer for everybody else in the world <laughs> it's just that we had a lot of remains in ireland So they're far more numerous and abundant than anywhere else in the world. So people in Ireland naturally call it giant Irish deer. <laughs> so, so um, but yeah, giant deer are, are the same. It's, it's, it's the same as an Irish elk. It's just that the species is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just, like, it's, a common, it's it's just like a common name versus scientific yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. More or less. Gotcha. Right. It's still it's still wrong though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, tell you how the how the environment looked like. So what what those animals? Uh, so I, I presume they were like you said they were uh, in they're living in Europe as well. Yes, yeah. those those, those they, giant deer. So giant deer. That's from giant deer. Yeah, they stretch from the Ural Mountains in Russia all the way across. There was, you know, different subspecies of giant deer, big ones and small ones, different palmations and stuff. Um, they, they really, you know, there's a lot of subspecies in Italy, for example, but they marched all the way across Europe. So they followed the changing environment um, and they ended up in Ireland. Now, interestingly enough, it's like, well, how did they get to Ireland? <laughs> yeah, um, the bridges. Because we had them, we had them from about kind of we had two waves of giant deer, and this is now all the the recent evidence that we can tell this. Um, we had giant deer occurring from about kind of forty thousand to about thirty five thousand years ago, and then they went, and then we have them after the ice age. They came in again. At about 14 to about what was it, 11 and a half thousand years ago. But what's interesting is how they got in after the Ice Age. So there must have been some kind of a, a land bridge and before the sea levels rose. So they got in quite early after the ice retreated, which is interesting. Um, and then they 
then got stuck here. So then once the ice retreated, the sea levels rose and Ireland became an island. Round about, now we have a, a radiocarbon date around about 14,000 years, but Ireland would have become an island about 15 to 16,000 years ago. So they must have got in quite early. Or alternatively, there was a refugium during the Ice Age. So maybe not all of the ice covered Ireland. And that's something I talk about a bit in the reindeer paper mm -hmm. as well. Right. Uh, so there is a possibility on that. So this is a, this is the same. Like we ne we actually never know. We have some bones, and like if there is a gap in between, we don't know. Like we are we were actually absent, or we just don't have uh, findings from this period, right? We don't. What we do have, interesting enough, we have woolly mammoths and wolves and reindeer between 19 and 21,000 years ago, 22,000 years ago. And according to the Ice Age models, Ireland was covered in ice. Wow. So there's something not quite right there. So that's where maybe there was a refugium. Right. And this was like talking from, say, Waterford Harbour up the Black Blackwater Valley up towards Cork. So this kind of finger-like from the southeast coast finger light projection projection going up the valley um mm. as far as like so the mammoth woolly mammoth wolves and uh, reindeer we have from castle Pooh cave wow. so there wasn't ice so yeah yeah so it's interesting so there's something you know we need to explore that further um yeah. and that's where more radiocarbon dating is really important <laughs> so we're back to the old For radiocarbon dating, we need funding. So radiocarbon dating in, like, for one sample, it costs, you can get, like, a discount for 10. So you get, like, a percentage discount for 10 samples. But one one sample costs, uh, what is it? It's, uh, I think it's around about three, 350 euro. Wow. Okay. So it is expensive. Yeah, yeah, wow. Are, are there any mammoth kill sites in, in Ireland? Unfortunately, it's hard to know um, because a lot of the mammoth remains, even though they're documented in the original notebooks, the excavation notebooks by the guys on site at the caves, those remains are gone. Um, they're not in the museum anymore. So over the years, they've been lost from the collection due to space issues and whatever else. What do you mean space issues? They just, just throw them away? No, we don't have a space for this, this bond. It's just... You're serious. Oh, man. so yeah hard previous previous museum staff yeah hard to believe so hard so there was like there's interesting um descriptions in in one of the old um notebooks saying that there was like a, a mammoth skull found in 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 one of the back of the chambers and with you know was propped up So it was kind of looking upwards, you know, so the the teeth, so the front, like the, where the nose would have been, would have been up towards the ceiling. And there was a, uh, some kind of a femur bone stuck in the nasal passageway. And the excavator at the time said this was most unusual. It feel, you know, it, it seems like it was purposely placed there for some kind of ritualistic kind of thing. It's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then again, so, whether they, whether they just found a dead mammoth and and done that, or whether they killed the exactly. mammoth, exactly. Yeah, you can know. you can find the 
cut in a green mammoth bone we won't know <laughs> yeah uh, exactly so so yeah so lots of material like castle pook bone remains where you know the reindeer the butchered reindeer has come from um there's only about maybe two and a half to three thousand bones left of that assemblage out of something like sixty thousand bone wow. fragments originally so it's like lots of information it's like what else are we not never going to find because it's unbelievable. of the loss? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Okay, just to finish off on the on the giant deer. So, yeah. so what? So you know, inevitably, I'm getting into to, to, so what happened? So we have these so, so we had these giant deer, and they roam around around the native deer. Mammoth was still around at the time. Yeah, mammoth yeah. was still bear, wolves, bear, wolves, the whole well, wolves, yeah, wolves, yeah, uh, Irish hare stoats um and reindeer um, reindeer reindeer so, no red deer no red deer oh no red deer okay yeah uh, yeah there doesn't seem to be any post glaciation evidence of red deer until the neolithic 5000 you know when the introduction happened so so giant deer the environment for giant deer at that time you know would have been open kind of tundra with pockets of woodlands okay so, so only like the males. Mm, oh yeah, a bit like reindeer landscape. Yeah. Um, so only the males carried antlers, which again they shed every year. Um, the females didn't carry antlers. So reindeer, male and female, carry antlers. Um, but giant deer, yeah, they kind of weighed up to like a prime mature social social adult, like in his prime, just before the rut, weighed nearly two tons. So huge, huge, muscular deer, basically deer on steroids almost. Um, and then a female is, you know, about 800 kilos. The, she gave birth to an offspring of about 40 kilos. So, you know, a youngish adult female doe, the fallow doe is about 40 kgs. Well, so I was going like to, I was going to, I was going to, I was going to say that, that this is like almost like a, 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 a calf would be like a, like an adult seeker. <laughs> yeah. So fallow deer are the direct descendants of giant deer as well. Oh, really? So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they're the only living, um, yeah, only living direct descendants um, of, of giant deer. But yeah, so giant deer. So until recently, we thought that, um, recently as in 2016, <laughs> um, we thought that giant deer um, didn't survive. So there was this brief cold snap uh, about twelve and a half thousand years ago, it lasts about eight hundred a thousand years, which was the younger driest. Younger driest. So yeah. you had like Nahanigan uh, glacier formed in Wicklow, where Turlock Park uh, pumping station is the uh, ESB thing. So that was like a little glacier that formed, like some it came out and and carved up Wicklow, and um, you know everything died out all the, the grass left, etc. like basically, and because giant deer were grazers, primarily they ate grass, um, their, their food source literally started changing in front of them and they didn't survive then the younger dryas. So we've no giant deer post the younger dryas, which is 11, when it ended at 11,000, 11 and a half thousand years ago. But we have a spanner in the works now because of the brown bear, the butchered brown bear patella, I found, uh, which is dated to in in the middle of the younger dryas, 
we have humans butchering brown bears in County Clare. So now we have to think, well, maybe human, if there was humans butchering a brown bear, they might have been you know, hunting giant deer as well and reindeer at that time. They're the only two species of large mammal at the time, apart from brown bear. So it kind of like, I haven't found giant deer, butchered giant deer bones as yet. There might be something, but I still have to get to the bottom of it. But, um, so we have to now include a human factor into the demise of, of giant deer. So it might be a combination of if they were being hunted and then we have this cold snap lasting, the vegetation is dying down, more forests, you know, more open water, etc. That the between the combination of hunting, over hunting and changing in the environments that it just didn't survive. Is, like, is, 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 is in general the discussion about younger dryas and in, in, in the Pleistocene megafauna extinction, right? This is, this is one of my uh, kind of pet subjects that is quite controversial, but I think the idea that maybe, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, still the mainstream is that there was a human factor and overkill and demise of a Pleistocene megafauna, but then there is a, I think more and more evidence comes in, like you said, that there was a younger Dryas event might have been a catastrophic event uh, that at least contributed hugely to to so that's but that's a that's a separate thing so, but i'm just you know fascinated that i'm kind of finding reflection of exactly that with the giant deer and 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 what you're saying Woo, Ruth, we covered a lot that's that's absolutely <laughs> fascinating um i haven't even got onto deer yet yeah, we didn't well, you know, go to the deer yet. yeah let's 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 do this let's 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 talk a, let's talk a little bit about the deer and I just want to uh, maybe as a as a as a pivot to that start with a rewilding. You mentioned rewilding. Um, would you say that you know rewilding is another of those controversial subjects that shouldn't be controversial at all, at least mm. in my head. It's more important, I would say, how how soon we. I don't know if it's how 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 soon we lost something, right? So if we talk mm -hmm. about rewilding, if we say like, okay, we want to bring back wild boar, for example, mm -hmm. right? Am I correct saying that it's more important to say, to say, you know, when we lost them rather than to say when was the first time they showed up? Because then we're talking about like, okay, rewilding, are you trying to, and this is a big conversation point, are you trying to, you know, are you understanding a rewilding? And let's pick the point in time somewhere in the past and try to bring things there, or are we trying to, you know, go forward and rebuild something forward? In which case, you know, how far back we had something might be not that important. What's what's your what's your views on that? Um, I suppose like my my own thinking is that we can't just pick a point in time because you can't recreate everything exactly for that point in time uh, species adapt through time you know ecosystems change vegetation changes through time through climatic effects through you know human impacts through animal impacts even you know deer large mammals woolly mammoth 
giant deer, red deer, reindeer. They're natural bioengineers. So they change the landscape that they live in by living in the landscape and eating their way through. So, you know, personally, I think you have to look at when a species were hit, was here and then up and, and trace it through time, but also look at the ecosystem changing through time and how that species adapted through time. And then you have to look at, you know, if, if we're moving forward into the future, you know, how that species may or may not survive in our current and future world because of X, Y, Z, climate, human impact, urbanization, you name it. You know, the human population is ever increasing until there's a catastrophic, deadly pandemic, like Ebola everywhere. You know, the human population isn't going to be cut down significantly. Um, so you, ha you have this ongoing human impact factor that will only get worse through time. And the effects on ecosystems, ecosystems can change only so much. But as the human element increases so fast and the ecosystem is always lagging behind, and then you have climatic change now coming in and the effects of climatic change. And people want to reintroduce certain species because once upon a time we had them. But once upon a time, they disappeared too. And you have to ask, well, why did they disappear? What effects caused them to disappear? Because obviously they couldn't live in that environment. Was it a combination of overhunting and ecosystem change with other factors involved? Or was it that the animal just, the ecosystem changed and the animal couldn't adapt fast enough? So placing them within our current and future environment, I think will have to involve feasibility studies and modeling. Um, and, and take into effect everything before we even get into a conversation of let's bring back whatever it is. We have to trace, well, where were they in the past? What was going on in that past? How they adapted through time and what caused their original uh, disappearance? Um, you know, rewilding is like a sexy word that, you know, everyone's talking about now. You know, was once upon a time reintroductions. <laughs> That seems, you know, it's still there, but it's like rewilding now has just come along. It's like, wow. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like until we know the facts of what we had and where they were in time and what was that environment like that they were living in and how they adapted to it, we can't answer the future questions. So we have to look at the past. And that's where the paleo stuff you know, paleo environments, paleoecology, paleobiology, paleoecology, you know, all these things are so important for us going forward. So, you know, that, that that's that's my view anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, 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 unless I think we have quite recent extirpations, right? Like, for example, wolf, right? And I'm not even want to start conversation about reintroducing wolf because I'm well aware <laughs> of the of all the problems related, you know, social problems. I don't think yeah. uh, biological problems, but social economic problems. But in that case, it's, uh, I, I think the case for reintroduction might be, you know, minus everything that I said before about social income, but case for introductions based on the 
environment is quite easy because they were just, you know, extirpated as far as I'm concerned, based on the um, orders of one man <laughs> from, from, from Ireland. So then that, that should be um, easier, but it, it's not because we can't, like you said, we can't ignore this economical social aspect. Well, no, you're, you're talking about if we introduce wolf, well, then we have to clear half of Ireland of all people and all infrastructure. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it just, it. unfortunately, we have to be, you know, live in reality and our reality is that there's increasing numbers of people everywhere <laughs> and they're building everywhere and road systems everywhere and loss of natural woodland everywhere and habitat fragmentation everywhere and habitat loss everywhere so yeah. it's like i know it's it, it it's a dose of reality i think is required Yes, it would be amazing to have all these animals back. Although I would think twice walking out in the wild with brown bear roaming, <laughs> but, but that's just a personal thing. Um, I, I'm just scared of brown bears. Um, I'm, but, not, I'm not blaming you. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a event. It's an event to yeah. walk in the woods knowing brown exactly. bear is there. So like, what's that noise? Usually yeah, it was yeah, deer. Yeah. No, it could be you brown bear. You just took your trail cam and you hear see like a big massive brown bear or a star <laughs> with the cubs on the, on the trail cam. Like, all right, my car is just right there. <laughs> exactly. I'm out of here. Um, but but yeah, like it, it would be wonderful. But I think a dose of reality is required. And I know um, oh, the Twitter account Rewilding Ireland. Is yeah. it? Uh, what's his name behind David. that? Davis, yeah. We have him on the podcast. I don't remember the number. Rewilding yeah, Ireland. Yeah, I'm still to listen to that one. But um, I know he's probably not going to be happy with me. But it's it's just a reality check is required. And until we, we start really getting into the feasibility, it's one thing to talk about it. But when you get into the feasibility, that's where the reality check comes in. Mm-hmm. Can we actually, you know, before we get permissions and so on, can we actually do this? Can the animals survive? Because otherwise it's not fair on the animal to begin with. You know, you're releasing it into its doom, basically, which, you know, and then then you have the whole, well, sheep are easy targets <laughs> for mm. wolves. Yeah, it's um, a, it's an it's an interesting you know thing about the, about the wolves because yeah, some arguments are that like yeah you, that they don't need that much space they will adapt they will and then I guess that this is down to understanding of what rewilding is because my yeah. my point is you know if we have to if we bring back wolves and we ended up with having like a you know pockets of population you know, sneaking in here and there and scavenging bins on the back of a little, I am, you That's know, not not, uh, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Like, like rewilding is, it can, can consist, have the word wild. So I, yeah. I like wilderness where, so, exactly. uh, you know, if my ideal view, I'm, I'm way more aligned with you, like, yeah, half an Ireland, you know, wilderness. Yeah, like obviously, like you know, what you're gonna do with people? Like, I'm not talking about it, right? If I can, <laughs> obviously, that's a click the fingers, like click the finger, right? It wouldn't Avengers. be wouldn't be nice, right? Wouldn't it be nice yeah. to have this massive wilderness with whole yeah. assemblage of animals that are sure it'd be nice. How are you yeah. gonna do this? Like, bleh. 
Yeah, like you said, yeah, <laughs> visibility is like, <laughs> it's 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 not. And then you then you have to kind of think, well, why don't we conserve what we have? Like red fox, they they're a nice little carnivore. They they're they're treated as vermin. However, we have red fox in the lake glacial, so we have red fox dated to lake glacial. So they're as native as anything else. Yeah, yeah, and yet they get treated by like like vermin so and they're not even protected under the wildlife act mm -hmm. yes oh because they're vermin <laughs> yeah well you know this is this is this is good uh, i think pivot to the probably last or one of the last things i want to talk to you about which is assessment of the population so we're going to get into deer but the fox is a good thing as well right because you know some people say that foxes population of foxes goes down someone says oh there's more foxes than ever we never got run out of foxes and kind of the same thing with deer this is something that pains me and and actually i i got discouraged to have any conversation over oh should we hunt this and this even in the uk discussions around even recently there was a um a a piece published uh about impact on fox population uh on ban on hunting and you, you know all the things and basically it's like do we have an do we have enough do we have a, a census do we know how many animals we have what is the population what is the density of the population what is the dynamic of that population and overwhelmingly the answer is no we have no idea Yet everybody has a strong opinion over what we should do. And <laughs> yes, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, unfortunately, though, I'm I'm currently working up. We we haven't finished the modeling, so I can't actually discuss the results because I don't know the results as yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm working up with a paper with the Irish Deer Commission members and a few other collaborators um, on a national deer updated distribution, but also modeling deer numbers. Yes. So we'll get a census now. That will only provide an initial estimate. Uh, so building on that, I'd like to start a Wicklow, Wicklow County project because it seems to be the poster child of badness in this country when it comes to deer and deer talk and dear supposed numbers and so on and like talking to Ashley you know kind of you know he, he's seen I've seen as well in in certain hillsides where you count more than 400 deer at one time uh, in County Wicklow and but but are they the 400 deer that you saw last week in a different location or are they a new set of 400 deer that you're seeing and there's seasonal distribution you know you'll have the stags in their bachelor groups and sometimes bachelor herds almost. Um, and then you have the, the females in their uh, groups, their family groups. So, you know, because Wicklow is this poster child of, you know, anytime anything is mentioned about deer, both in the IFA media as well as other media, it's like Wicklow, 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 bad problems, bad problems. So in that sense, you know, I, I will be putting together, um, a little uh, project synopsis and looking for funding to do a, a, a Wicklow deer census mm -hmm. uh, amongst Man, other we gotta get this crowdfunder year. going <laughs> i know <laughs> there's so many but this is like so many not only interesting but important things important things how, yeah. how, you know because it, it would form a basis like one 
you know, we get the distribution of deer, males and females distribution in, in the county. Um, we'll get, you know, hopefully buy-in from the hunter community and the farming community. So I'm working from the bottom upwards. Um, so I, I want buy-in with people with their boots on the ground because they're the ones with the knowledge. And I can't be everywhere at once and neither can anyone else be everywhere at once. But if we, if we all work together, we can make something good and answer, try and answer questions. And, you know, I'd have a... I want to develop a little app for the phone for, for Wicklow people, basically, and say, okay, I've seen X number of deer, there were X number of males, X number of females, and say, blah, blah, calves, you know, depending on the time mm -hmm. of the year. They're Have you seen that app, that, that app, Smart Deer? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't as yet. There, there, no. is, a, there is already, maybe maybe you, you, you can, you know, uh, talk with these folks, this Smart Deer app that is meant to, you know, Uh, I'm just going into that app and it goes like, you know, a random sighting, calling returns outside and it kind of grabs your GPS location and you can put in, you know, what, what, whatever happened. Maybe that's already done. Maybe you can, you can talk with uh, these folks. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You know, you, you know whether there's any politics going on behind the scenes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so get back to the Wicklow project. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, um, so, yeah, so, so, I was talking to Ashley about it and the Irish Deer Commission are on board as well. Like we want to try and get, get it done next year because it would form a basis for another project that I want to apply in terms of deer uh, movement, fine scale movement in the county. So putting GPS uh, collars on, on uh, an amount of deer in the county and seeing their fine scale movements and then how they interact with Uh, cattle in fields and what's the percentage of this interaction and therefore a potential in terms of potential deer transmission or disease transmission between cattle and deer and so on so another question is to get into um you know seasonal movement and so on and where where are the hot spots and, and that kind of thing um so like so but, but first of all we need to know where the deer are um you know in the different seasons throughout the year And we need to get numbers. So if I can get the funding to get some thermal uh, camera dr drones up in the air mm -hmm. and, and work with the likes of Ashley and whoever else is on the ground that wants to work uh, and collaborate on this. And, you know, everything will be shared and, you know, meetings and whatever and presentations and papers. Um, but like, you know, it's something that needs to be done because until we have numbers like my i i'm a firm be believer in data-led uh, or science-led deer management and until we have numbers on papers and facts um of where things are how many there are and what are they doing then we can then start addressing well we need to really you know concentrate on this particular i don't know 30 square kilometer area for excuse me, for deer management and work with the locals on the ground, the deer hunters on the ground who have permissions and X, Y, and Z, and actually say, look, if we all work together, we can actually get the population down to a certain level that's sustainable. So you still have the, the culling. So I'm not taking culling away from people. I'm not, I'm not trying to kill off all the deer. Deer are good for the environment. You know, they, they're very positive for biodiversity once they're in balance with their environment. And, uh, you know, if you can get it down to... A sustainable level going forward and then review it every couple of years 
It's, it's, you know, in theory, it's simple, but in practice, it is simple. Oh. You know, all, that's, all, that's a surprising. <laughs> yeah, it, it is simple once you take away the politics. Ah, damn it. Yeah. And, but if you have a group of people, and this is where working from the bottom up, when you get buy-in from the bottom up, it, it tends to work rather than the top down. Because Irish people don't want to be told what to do. Yeah, I think that people do, anywhere, I, I think yeah. people anywhere don't like to be told what to do, especially when, you know, someone from top coming is like, this is what is going to like, there is this natural resistance before I even hear what they're talking about. My first thought is like, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. I think exactly. it's just a human yeah. nature. Is it just so, human? So, there, so there is interest um, from the IFA body um, for the Wicklow Deer Project. I just have to now draw up some, you know, text and an overview of the project and so on. So I'm hoping to get some funding and buy-in from the IFA in Wicklow. And then after that, if, if I have to go door-to-door to car distributors or people under the crowd i'm, t- I'm telling you like crowd crowdfunder crowdfunder and and the website with donations this is this is thing we can get this thing going yeah, yeah. I'm, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure there's a lot of people who would be willing to you know just just drop the drop the few pennies and you know okay ruth um one last question one last mm-hmm. question on um invasive species Um, and we have two. One is a uh, sika deer, which uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna ask this compound question, right? So the first <laughs> part of the question is a sika deer, and I'm just express my. I don't think they're. I don't agree with their status as invasive. I, 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 I you can explain now whether I'm wrong or right. Um, They, uh, they're just lovely deer. And the other one is the moonjack, which is, uh, you know, I, I heard a few years ago on a podcast that it is more likely to uh, to see the Bigfoot in Ireland than moonjack. But then since then, this few years forward, then those, those moonjacks seems to be popping up here and there, right? Mm. I'm just curious about your comments about these two, because I think these are the two like a most, you know, poster child for invasive deer. Yeah, like sika deer, I think it was, you know, the, looking at the distribution of sika deer, they're, they're very localized in certain parts of the country. You do have small groups of them in the Midlands, but, you know, you have the, the main trust of them in the east and then down in the southwest in Clarny. You know, if the, the fact that they're labeled as invasive is a, is a, It's an interesting one because if if they were invasive, people would be looking at extermination programs. But you can't exterminate a, a, a very mobile species such as any deer species entirely. Um, you know, when 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 you look at any ungulate when they try to exterminate, there's always going to be ones that will slip away and survive. But you know, in terms of their stasis it's an interesting one because you know if I don't know if there would be more um, uh, 
you know, more awareness of them as an invasive species if they were totally across the country, as in distribution, distribution is just like all over Ireland. Because they're still confined-ish to their little strongholds. Now, in, in Wicklow, we have Sika deer, but we also have hybrid deer, hybrid between Sika and Red. Now, you know, the, the hybridization there occurred with Paraspores, who forced their interbreeding, and then they escaped. You know, the population increased. Some of oh, them so there was first then, interbreeding. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So it occurred in his state. He literally put male Sika with a female Red in a pen. Okay. <laughs> and started breeding them up. Um, some of them escaped over the years, and then during the revolution, the war, the independence war, the, the estate just crumbled in uh, and it was and just let, let, let out, you know. And then they started interbreeding with each other, and there you have the, the hybridization. Now, the worry I have for Killarney, because these red deer are important, is that there's a potential that Sika would interbreed. However, to date, we've no evidence of Sika interbreeding with red deer down there, even though they've been together for what 160, 80 years or something, which is interesting. So maybe they need a forced, you know. Is it body uh, size difference? I heard that this there is, is there is a huge, yeah. The, I must say the Sika and Clarny are much smaller than the Sika and Wicklow. Yeah. And it's probably due to the forage, you know, where they're in Wicklow, there's a lot more good quality forage available, i.e. farmland, um, rather than Killarney, where you have the difference in the uplands, the lowlands, and they seem to be confined within the national park. What I heard is that this is why it's so important to manage red deer herd in Killarney, because if they're not managed, then they're going to be compromised in terms of uh, food availability, and they will start getting smaller. Yeah. And once they start getting smaller, then uh, they will be more, you know... Um, exposed i say i suppose is the word to hybridization well, with Sika. at the heart of this is that they have a very low genetic diversity so if you think about genetic diversity and in reds. terms of, of yeah of, of surnames so you know down there like for example in wicklow the Sika have like i don't know i think 20 different surnames so that's their so genetic diversity haplotype numbers you know quite high Whereas in Kerry, in Killarney, red deer have two. Oh, really? Wow. Which makes them then, if there was a disease outbreak of, I don't know, foot and mouth or TB even in the deer down there, it would make their recovery very slow, if not, not at all. So there is this kind of doomsday kind of situation down there. And, and we found with previous work that we published, um, that uh, the genetics are divided uh, according to the management, to the old, I don't know if they're current, management units that the rangers used in the, in the oh. park. So, the, the, so their management, the way that they were shooting according to these units, wasn't, was, was creating this doomsday effect, so, which is bad. Interesting. Um, so, so yeah, so if something were to happen, that is out of control and, and runs through red deer down there, um, then it might be cast uh, 
exactly that's the word <laughs> um to to the reds and and maybe then something could happen with the Sika, but there are the differences in body size is much more extreme than it is than you see in in, in Wicklow the Sika and Wicklow are bigger um and that's due to genetics but also due to the environment what they're eating so they can actually fulfill their genetic potential um so you know like Sika Sika are interesting they've been here since 1860 so can you confirm and, and, that, and the, then, that, but, the, but, that the population of Sika in Ireland is a is it like a pure breed Japanese Sika and therefore they're important yeah, genetically for to the, the world the, they, they were introduced from Japan pure purebred so to speak from Japan um 1862 Paris Gorse estate and there were pure like the genetic traces we see is Japanese Sika there but then but then you look at say you have to ask well red deer populations in Ireland you have red deer being introduced from Scotland to Donegal in 1861 and later later stages into the east of Ireland so why are they not invasive if it's a and I think if it's if it's a if, if it's a year thing now see if if you know Sika the term invasive, I don't know whether it's applicable in the truest sense. Rhododendron is invasive. Yes. And that spreads like wildfire. Um, but with Sika... Yeah. I don't know, like... Is it I, agree with, they, I, I agree with yeah, you. Is, yeah, I is it the because same. they can't spread because they're hinged in by human infrastructure and human impact? Um, you know, but then you have they're they're they are marching, not so much marching, but they are spreading down through the Black Stairs Mountains from Wicklow down into the Westward. They are in certain parts of Waterford, they're in certain parts of Cork. Um, and then then you have the stronghold in the east. Now in the west, there doesn't seem to be much seek out in the west at all. Um, and I think they're selectively shot if if seen because they don't want the threat of hybridization going on there so i don't know it's an interesting one i think um you know i suppose you have to ask why were they classified as an invasive species is it because they're classified like they are classified worldwide outside of their own native range as invasive because of their invasive nature in other countries in Ireland, it doesn't seem to be as bad. There is a population of them in Maryland as well, and they're very, you know, yeah. valued. And and, and, oh, and yeah. I think that they they're valued as a resource. That they're great little they, deer. I like yeah. it. Yeah, they're like in Maryland. They've been studying them for decades, decades. You know, and a lot of what we know about Sika behavior and so on comes from the Maryland study. Um, we, and, and they're studied in their home native range as well. Like, but the Maryland study really, you know, like I don't know, that that must be at least forty, if not more, maybe fifty years old at this stage. That study, even more, like you know, it's it's quite extensive body of work. Um, but yeah, 
No, I, I think know. you. I think you. I think you answered. I think you answered my question. This part, <laughs> anyway. Do we have a time for Munchak? Munchak, yeah, Munchak. Um, Munchak's an interesting one. I just like. I think that. Okay, for any introduction of any species to Ireland illegally, they're not being checked for diseases, and that's my fear that they bring in something that then dissipates to our wild deer population and suddenly all hell breaks loose. Yes, because they can't cope with a pathogen that Munjak is... Well, you know, if, if Munjak brought in foot and mouth and they were released somewhere in Ireland and the foot and mouth jumped from that species to a different species of deer, mm-hmm. that's it. That's our deer species gone. Yeah. And that's our you know, domestic livelihood gone as well with domestic livestock um you know so it's the threat so you know again it's like these uh wild boar inverted commas releases across ireland it's a disease the one thing i fear the most is the disease element and that's why i cannot agree with these releases because they aren't going through the checks that need to be done but also is their impact releasing them into an environment where a they're like what the F just happened? I'm suddenly here. Yeah. <laughs> and they have no territory as such, so they have to establish territory. But by doing that, they cause unnecessary impacts in the environment because the animals are stressed out. Um, so, you know, there are negative impacts in the environment, which then creates a negative view, view of them yes. to the public is important. So if you're going to do it, you do it right. Now, with Munchak, we never had Munchak here. They, there was a, an introduction of Munchak to Sligo Lizardell House, but apart from, and they didn't survive. They were hunted out, basically. The, the, the estate owners brought over hunting parties and they had hunting parties every year and they just didn't survive. They, their model of, of culling was wrong, basically. Um, but we never naturally had Munchak. Oh, sorry, that was roe deer. Sorry, roe deer. Okay, roe deer. Yeah, roe deer are a lovely species. They they taste very nice as well. Oh, yeah. I've had them in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had them in um, Poland. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, roe deer and Lizardelle. So you can scrap that part in, in the in the in the podcast. But Munchak. Oh, I think yeah, it's we, relevant. I think it's relevant. Yeah. All right. Well, you can put in the mistake then. <laughs> the correction. <laughs> um, yeah, Munchak, we never had, there's no trace of Munchak in Ireland here before. Yeah. So you're yeah. kind of doing an introduction, not a reintroduction. For sure. And you're, you're introducing a species that may not be suitable to Ireland, mm-hmm. you know, the ecosystems in Ireland and the weather and the climate. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, that they haven't survived in Ireland is due to weather and environmental issues. It's just not suitable for them. Do you think that those reintroductions still going on, or are they just like a like a? Pocket, I don't know. I I have pocket of them anything. being somewhere, and they're just doing their own I, thing. I don't know. Like you know, if if they are there doing their own thing, we'll know in a couple of years because they do reproduce quite quickly. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. What, that, that it seems like there is a more and more sightings. Mm, well, with the amount of walkers and people who use the land in various forms from farmers to hunters to whatever foresters um you know 
they will probably be the ones to, to pick out, you know, if there's a muntjac deer breeding population because they're on the land so much. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for that, Ruth. Listen, that no was absolute pleasure and uh, just a boatloads of fantastic information. And um, <laughs> we covered a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot, and like a, you know, like a one takeaway for me is that you know whoever wants to support you, you know, maybe there's someone listening to this now with a deep pockets and can <laughs> it's, it's fascinated with this stuff. <laughs> Mm-hmm. um ruth f carden on twitter that's how people can uh look yeah, at, at your yeah. at your work um yeah. is there should any other way that people can or should contact you um uh i have an email address mm-hmm. yeah i don't know it's um, the best idea to yeah. broadcast it like that on the on the podcast I know, I, I but think, the twitter um, is a good is a good is a I good think point Twitter is a good one and um if they search for me online they will find the number for me you know so um i am there in some form or another but yeah like it like so many people have told me to set up a a crowdfunding kind of situation or or something like that so i think um i think i'll be first one to advertise that you all my listeners viewers and whatever like absolutely i I, you know thank you very much the fact that that you moving knowledge and understanding of what's going on on your own devices, your own, you just, if, if not your interest, we wouldn't know that it was just purely your, it, it's absolutely fantastic. And I, and I think it's a real shame that no one just comes out and said like, Hey Ruth, listen, this is very important work that you do. We, we, we're going to fund you. Right. Uh, like people should be banging to your doors to give you money to, for that, for that work. Gee, rather than- that would be brilliant because we could do so much together. Like, you know, like, I, I was thinking of like a friend of mine suggested that, uh, you know, because I publish, I do publish the results in peer reviewed journals. Um, obviously, whoever donates to a certain level will be named in the acknowledgements. So there is that and they get a copy of the paper and, and whatever else that comes out. Um, but uh, if, if there were a certain deeper pocket people out there, then I would offer co-authorship because it's an important thing and especially somebody who has you know even if they didn't have knowledge but were willing to to give time over and so on and uh, and help the project along then that's another option i don't know if that's something that people would be interested in or not um but you know it's it's like if, if somebody could fund the work that would, that would be brilliant because you know with the cave bone project uh, you know the irish cave bone project that i call it the only reason it's taken this amount of time to get there is because it's not funded. So I could have gotten all the work done in three years time if I was, you know, funded full time. But, and again, with the deer work, it's, you know, self-funded to a certain point. And then it's like my spare time and, and spending holidays and so on. But because I live in County Wicklow, I really want to do something in my own County for, you know, cause I I've done so much work in other different counties and, and Wicklow is, is it's such an important county, but it's so different to all the other counties due to its you know makeup of the landscape because you have a lot of forestry um, and a lot of farming land mixed in with that forestry. And then you have the National Park as well. So it is very different landscape makeup compared to other counties. And because it's the poster child for bad things with deer and farming and stuff, I think it's important to, to nail it on the head sooner rather than later so we can move forward 
and and get something going that's that actually benefits not only the the farmers and the users of the land but also the deer as well absolutely uh, Ruth, you are absolute hero. Thank you for your do. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Tommy. I enjoyed now today. Hopefully, <laughs> once I get some more, get some more results down the line, you can come back and discuss that. Absolutely, so. we'll do it again. Thank you. All right, thanks a lot, Tommy.